0: The idea is to come after the natural process of photosynthesis, and to extract this carbon and to make it very stable, and so this is Biochar. The people who will be funding these solutions, it's most likely large companies like Starbucks. We have a mid-term objective for 2030, to have installed enough production plants to be able to remove 2 million tons of CO2 equivalent per year. It's both huge and nothing.
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome back. In this new episode of Scaling Climate Tech, we welcome Olivier Reynaud, co-founder and managing director at NetZero. NetZero was founded in 2021 with a very diverse founding team, including the climatologist Jean Jouzel, the vice chair of the IPCC the International Panel on Climate Change, two owners of leading coffee processing facilities in Cameroon and in Brazil, as well as a father and his son, Axel and Olivier Renault. In this episode, we talk with Olivier about Net Zero Journey, from its roots in the family story going back to his grandfather, to being selected in the highly competitive Must Foundation Carbon Removal X Prize, and to more recently raising $12 million with large companies like L'Oreal as investors. Net Zero has scaled incredibly rapidly for such an asset heavy company with complex on-site operations, and do not intend to slow down with an ambitious roadmap to remove 2 million tons of CO2 with biochar by 2030. Let's get started. Hello Olivier, welcome to Scaling Climate Tech. Thanks for having me. I'm really happy to have you today on Scaling Climate Tech and venture together into the world of carbon credits and specifically biochar, which is what Net Zero produces and does. I'd like to discuss together why we even need carbon credits to start with. We've talked a lot of emission reduction on this show. So now is a great opportunity to talk about carbon offsets or carbon credits and how can it be a good complement to emission reductions in a net zero world. I'd like us to look into the different types of carbon credits. We'll see that there are very different practices, very different technologies. And it's a single term that encompasses really different levels of additionality, permanence, scalability. Naturally, we'll deep dive into a specific type of carbon credit, which is biochar, and understand what it is, how is it produced, and what are its benefits for climate, but for other things as well, we'll see. And finally, and this is my favorite part of the show, we'll discuss how this fairly old technology can actually scale up today to meet our climate commitments, and how net zero operating model can help really scale up biochar in the world. But before anything else, Olivier, can I ask you to introduce yourself? So I'm Olivier Renault. I'm from France, I'm 25 years old,
0: and I am one of the five co-founders of NetZero. So NetZero is a company that was founded a little bit over two years ago in 2021. We have launched two production plants, one in Cameroon and one in Brazil and we have some very ambitious scale-up plans for the next few months and years. And basically, our aim is to grow very rapidly. I think it goes well with the topic of this podcast as well. We're currently, production we have in Cameroon is around 2,000 tons of biochar per year. New plants that we're inaugurating in Brazil next month will be twice this capacity. We're looking at an exponential
1: production rate in the coming years. And you mentioned that you're five co-founders Yes, and I believe one of them is in Brazil, one of them is in Cameroon. Can you tell me a bit more about the team structure?
0: Yeah, we are actually a very diverse team. We are three French people and then there's one from Cameroon and one from Brazil. The Brazilian side, it's an engineer that specializes in pyrolysis, which is the core underlying technology for biotroproduction. In Cameroon, it's an agro-industrial entrepreneur who works in coffee processing. And then in France, we have a climatologist, former vice chair of the IPCC, former consultant from the Boston Consulting Group, and myself.
1: And I believe this is actually a family story. Net Zero, on how you got interested and developed Biochar. Can you tell me a bit more about that origin story? Yes. So it's a
0: story over three generations. It starts with my grandfather. So my grandfather was running an NGO that specialized in developing programs, Global South, sustainable development programs. And so he was one of the very first to be interested in Biochar to start doing actual projects with Biochar. At a time where Biochar was only a research topic and had no real implementation, he was one of the very first to actually implement it and to build a technology to produce it and to start having some first real-world results with Biochar. And so this is how the interest about Biochar came to me. I happened to work with my grandfather for his NGO for a number of years. And then it happens that also my father got involved at some point. It was during the COVID crisis. So we were in lockdown in Paris. We were in the same apartment. We were a bit bored. And so we started brainstorming about what we could do with this amazing solution that is biochar and how we could bring it from small scale projects with not that much impact to something very scalable and something that could maximize Biochar's potential. Yeah, that's the short story of how it started as a family story over three generations. And then the other founders joined in. My grandfather was
1: not one of the founders. but He was the reason why everything started. And so yeah, that's pretty much it. Beautiful family story. And put in context, when your grandfather actually got interested in Biochar, that was 70s or 80s, or because climate discussion is very prominent today. But I imagine back at that time, that was very poor leading from him to work on those topics.
0: Yeah, absolutely. My grandfather had a not-so-common professional curriculum. He started in the digital world. He built the first operating system for the microcomputer. He then switched to chemical industry. He worked for what was at the time the largest company in the world doing chemicals. It was called Imperial Chemical Industries. And then he went to the Rio Conference in 1992. And this is where he really got this sort of awareness about climate change and the need to do something. And so he left his job at ICI and he decided to internationalize a small Brazilian NGO, which was called Pronatura which became Pronatura International. And so this is how he started being interested in the topic of climate change. And it's true that at the time, there were very little people actually regarding the topic seriously, because lots of scientists were saying that there was a big problem, but no one was actually doing anything. So yes, he was a pioneer.
1: Yeah, very early. And I mean, there was a time where, you know, there was still discussion on whether this was real or not and people yeah. contradicting science, disagreeing on Absolutely. whether global warming was happening. Super interesting. So before going into the, the specifics of biochar and, and net zero, I'd love to just step back a bit and look at the broader space, the carbon credit market broadly. We know that we, we must reduce our emissions globally. It's actually quite drastic moving from 50 gigatons a year to half of that in 2030 and even less in 2050. We also know that some industries will not be able to fully decarbonize for various reasons, aviation, heavy industry, agriculture, and so on. So this is where carbon credits could have a role. Could you share your broader perspective on, you know, the role of carbon credits in this net zero transition and also the scale they have to play in that transition?
0: Yeah. So I think the easiest way to look at that is to read IPCC's reports. So when you see the numbers and when you see the curves, something is very clear. The vast majority of the efforts are on reductions. So we need to do everything to limit at the source the emissions to basically prevent adding more carbon in the atmosphere. And this is 80% of the effort. But then there's some industries that we don't know how to de- decarbonize them and we need them. if We want to maintain basically the current standard of the living that we have. I'm thinking of things that are very basic, but very necessary. Concrete, for example, transports in general. There are some innovations that may happen in the coming years and decades, but for now, we don't know how to do at scale, to have these solutions at scale to decarbonize these industries. And so there's this challenge of continuing using these services and these goods that are emitting carbon and yet reaching net zero and doing so by 2050, which is tomorrow. And so for these residual unabatable emissions, we need a way to compensate them, to neutralize them. And so we need solutions that remove an equivalent amount of carbon from the atmosphere and store this carbon away from the atmosphere. So that in the end, the balance is zero and that we contain climate change to acceptable levels. The amounts we're talking about are huge. It's not a big percentage, but in absolute numbers, we're talking about roughly 10 gigatons of CO2 equivalent. So it's absolutely massive. And currently, the industry capable of removing carbon from the atmosphere is removing basically zero. You have some removal solutions like trees, for example, planting trees and having forests, sequester carbon, but it's not enough. And so we will need on top of these natural solutions some technological approaches to do that. And these technologies for now, they're basically inexistent. There are some prototypes, there are some very small scale projects, but nothing at scale. And so the challenge is from between now and 2050, really, really scaling these solutions to be able to remove these 10 gigatons per year.
1: Got it. And those 10 gigaton, I mean, this is to remove those residual emissions. And this is not a maybe commonly accepted perspective, but it is also 10 gigaton remaining emissions are only if we're able to decarbonize quickly enough, the different industry that can be decarbonized. We're seeing today that we're not necessarily on track to doing that. Even industries where we know the solutions, like building decarbonization, heat pumps and so on. So there is even additional value, I believe, not only in decarbonizing the one where we don't have the technological solutions, but having, let's call it a plan B or additional ability to remove carbon If we're not able to decarbonize fast enough, which is, you know, to be clear, that is not what we want, but that is something we should plan for as well. For sure. And I was describing the optimistic scenario following
0: IPCC's 1.5 scenario. But of course, what we're seeing for now is that we are missing the target. We need to halve our emissions by 2030. And we're really, really not on track to do that. So yeah, unfortunately, maybe we will need
1: even more removal than, than what I said. Yeah. And so you just mentioned removals, you mentioned trees. Could you give us a bit of an overview of those carbon credits? Because again, we put all of this in the same umbrella yeah. and we need to remove 10 gigatons. That's the angle. But the attributes of each technology and each process is very different. Could you walk us a bit through that and specifically the difference between what you just mentioned removals, like biochar, and avoidance yeah, credits? Yeah,
0: sure. And I think it's very important to explain this difference, because as you said, carbon credits is a word that is used for basically anything that relates to carbon, and journalists often use it as a placeholder in a way. But it means really, really different things depending on what's the underlying scheme. So first of all, there's two types of markets, simplifying a bit, but there's the regulated market and there's the voluntary market. The regulated market is mostly today something we call cap and trade, which is basically putting a maximum threshold of emissions for a specific geographical area, uh, Europe, for example. And then based on this maximum threshold, there are some quotas that are allocated to very polluting companies. And so these quotas, the companies are not supposed to go above. If they consume all their quota and that they're still emitting, they need to buy some additional allowances to pollute to other companies which have not consumed their quota. And these transactions of quotas, sometimes they're referred to as carbon credits by journalists, but really they're emission allowances. And so the objective of doing that is to limit the additional carbon that we're putting in the atmosphere. And this is the regulated carbon trade market. And then there's the voluntary market, and on this voluntary market, you have two main types of projects. You have projects that do emission avoidance and projects that do emission removal. Emission avoidance is all the projects, as I mentioned, who prevent adding additional greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. So it can range from changing the way we produce energy. For example, a switch from a coal plant to solar panels. And so this limits the additional emissions we're sending in the atmosphere. It can also be protecting existing forests from deforestation. So you have an existing carbon sink, which is are forests, and if you protect it, you're making sure that the carbon stays away from the atmosphere. So these are emission avoidance projects, and they're great, we need them, but they're also very difficult to quantify, because basically, you need to use some hypotheses. For example, how long would have this coal plant that was referring to run, in terms of number of years, before being switched off? And so how many emissions are we actually avoiding? Same for the forest. What was the deforestation rate? And how would it have continued in the following years if we had done nothing? And these are very difficult hypotheses to do because we don't know. So we're basically guessing on the future. And we've seen recently in the press some scandals about basically methodologies that were used to quantify these emission avoidances. They were overestimating the emission avoidance that was done through these schemes. Basically, these credits are seen as less and less qualitative because they're difficult to monitor. They rely on, in a way, arbitrary hypotheses. And so it's a bit difficult because we need these protection mechanisms. We need to switch to a lower carbon energy system. We need to protect existing forests. But at the same time, it's very difficult to properly quantify the climate benefits of these projects. So these are emission avoidance projects, and so emission avoidance carbon credits. And then you have the removal credits. They're more easily quantifiable because you can, in a way, physically weigh the carbon that you're taking out of the atmosphere. Of course, the most well-known approach to removal is trees, so trees just capturing carbon through photosynthesis, and this carbon becomes part of the biomass that makes up the tree. And so you can measure circumference of a tree, for example, and its height, and you can calculate how much carbon there is in it, and then you can extrapolate that. You can use satellite images to calculate the stock of carbon that there's at any given point of time. And then you can monitor the growth of forests. So you're planting new trees when you're making a forest bigger, or when you're planting an area that was not planted before. has its challenges, but it's easier to quantify. And this is natural solutions. Then you have some more technological approaches, which are even more easy to quantify. And They also offer something that natural solutions don't offer, which is permanence. Forests, they're great, and they come with lots of co-benefits for biodiversity and so on. But we cannot guarantee that when we plant a tree, if we come back 30 or 50 years after, the tree will still be there. Because so many things can happen. The tree can be cut, there can be some wildfires, the tree can die from diseases, from just not being Correctly planted. There's a 50% death rate when you are doing reforestation programs. So there's no guarantee of permanence of the storage of the carbon with trees. Whereas with technological approaches, you can have this guarantee. You can have a form of permanence that you guarantee over time. Maybe the most well known approach with these technologies is direct air capture. And so you have these huge fans that are filtering ambient air that are taking the CO2 out of it, and then they're pressurizing the CO2 and sending it in a liquid form underground where it mineralizes in rocks. And so when you mineralize CO2, it becomes a rock. And so rocks have a very long life expectancy. So we're really not talking about the same guarantees when it's technological approaches and when it's natural removal solutions, although both are doing removal.
1: Super clear. And replaying these different type of credits to just describe, we'll take an example to bring it to life. Let's take a oil and gas company operating in Europe. So the first market to describe is the regulated market. So this oil and gas company will be given a certain number of emission allowances. If it produced more oil that year, or if it produced it in a non-responsible manner, it will exceed its allowance so we'll have to buy this allowance from a cleaner energy producer maybe and pay it at the market price and that's the cap and trade you're saying that the supply and demand if there's a lot of supply the price will be pretty low if there is a lot of demand the price of those allowances will be higher then you mentioned the voluntary carbon markets with the first one being avoidance so that same oil and gas company Could say, well, as part of my climate commitment, whatever they are, carbon neutrality, net zero, I will avoid deforestation somewhere, let's say in Southeast Asia. So this forest would have been chopped down. I will invest in it and pay for it so that it is not chopped down. And that brings the challenge we're mentioning around. How do you know if this forest was really going to be chopped down? is in another forest nearby going to be chopped down. so there are some challenges in what is the right counterfactual. And then you mentioned removals. So here that same oil and gas company you could say, well, this forest that has been previously deforested, I will plant new trees here. So that would be the, the natural solution approach or a technological approach like the one you mentioned, where that same company could invest or buy credits from a direct air capture facility or other technological, solutions there. And I think that the the real challenge here is that, as you said, in the media, when we talk about carbon credits, we often think of avoidance credits, because that's the one that are very controversial. I was thinking the newspaper, the article that came in the Guardian, there was a similar show by John Oliver, that also talked about a lot about these avoidance credits. And by bucketing all of these credits together, It reduces the credibility of carbon credits as a whole, when actually, as you explain, the difference in removals, specifically technology-based removals versus avoidance, is pretty dramatic.
0: And the IPCC says that we need these solutions. So there's clear scientific backing to say that it's not optional. We need them. It needs to be well done, which is it's not a substitute for emission reductions, but it's necessary and we cannot reach net zero without them. Yeah,
1: absolutely. So now that we have a better understanding of this landscape, let's double click on biochar because this is what net zero does. Could you share a bit more details what biochar actually is physically and what is the carbon impact and the role it can play in the net zero journey?
0: Yeah. So biochar is physically resembles charcoal. It's a solid product, black, mostly made of carbon. The principle is that you put this biochar in the soil so you mix it with topsoil and it stays in the soil how biochar is produced we basically take biomass so it can be forest residues it can be crop residues basically any plant-based biomass this biomass has carbon which comes from the atmosphere plants capture carbon in the atmosphere during photosynthesis And so, in a way, plants, they do the job of capturing carbon naturally. They take the carbon out of the atmosphere during photosynthesis. And so the idea is to come after the natural process of photosynthesis and to extract this carbon and to make it very stable. And so this is biochar. So biochar is essentially solid atmospheric carbon that was extracted from plants, which captured this carbon initially in the atmosphere. And then this biochar, we put it in the soil for two reasons. The first one is that we need to store this carbon somewhere. And so putting it in the soil is a way to store it. And it will remain very stable there for hundreds of years because of its very stable chemical structure. But it's also a way to improve agriculture, because it happens that biochar has amazing agronomical properties. It acts in a way as a sort of a carbon sponge in the soil, which will retain water and nutrients at plant root level. And the resulting benefits are that you increase yields and you can lower the use of fertilizers. And so you have this kind of unique solution where you're doing carbon removal and you're making agriculture more sustainable and more productive. And so this is basically biochar. So you have this combination of natural processes, so photosynthesis capturing the carbon in the atmosphere, and then a technological solution, which is based on a pyrolysis process, that extracts the carbon. And then this carbon is stored in the soil for climate benefits, but also for benefits in agriculture.
1: And those feedstocks that you mentioned, what are the uses for it today? Because the reason biochar is capturing carbon is because you're comparing two situations, right? You're comparing the situation with biochar where you're are doing this pyrolysis and capturing that carbon in the form of this powder, so biochar. And you have to compare the situation to the current situation where this carbon is released every year or every harvest into the atmosphere. Is that The right counterfactual?
0: Yes. So what you're doing is basically interrupting the natural carbon cycle. So I'm voluntarily putting human activities aside. If you had only natural ecosystems, you would have a perfectly balanced carbon cycle where on the one hand, you have some trees growing and more generally plants growing and capturing carbon in the atmosphere and to build their biomass. And on the other side, you have some plants that are dying, that are decomposing, and that are releasing this carbon in the atmosphere. So this is the carbon cycle. And this cycle is naturally balanced. And the problem is that we are having, on top of that, human activities, which are only putting more carbon in the atmosphere and not taking it out. And so this carbon cycle is not balanced anymore. But if you look at the biochar project basically what we're doing is interrupting the natural carbon cycle and only having the plants capture the carbon but not releasing it and then this carbon we make sure that it's very stable and we put it in the soil and so we're creating a sort of a carbon pump through the combination of nature and technology
1: and how much potential is there for this carbon pump because as you say it depends on how much of the feedstock you have we mentioned 10 gigaton but that's for- Whole carbon market solution. What role can biochar play in these 10 gigatons?
0: Yeah, so according to the IPCC, biochar could do between one and two gigatons of removal per year. So it's clearly not enough, but it can be a major contributor to this removal process that we need to implement at scale. And so it's a very interesting solution because it has a very big potential. And it also has a lot of co-benefits, and maybe we'll come back to that in a moment. But it's one of the few removal technologies that is not just for climate, but can be for other use as well. And so scaling biochar for climate is also scaling biochar
1: for agriculture, people, and so on. So this is actually a great plug to go into the operating model of net zero, because as you say, there are co-benefits that you're working very closely with partners like farmers and cooperatives that work on the food processing could you explain to us the typical operating model like the one you have in cameroon or brazil and also how do you secure the feedstock flows because that's one of the critical components of the biochar and how do you work with the different partners so those farmers and those food processors yeah sure
0: maybe before that i'll just step back a bit and explain how people until now were producing biochar because there are other companies doing biochar and why we haven't followed this model. So the few companies that are doing biochar today, they're almost exclusively in Europe and North America. They're all using wood residues as a feedstock. So it can be tree trimmings, it can be sawdust, it can be lots of basically wood residues. And so they're using this feedstock to produce the biochar. They're buying the feedstock at a very high price, because even if it's residues, wood has a lot of value. It can be used for a lot of things, including for energy purposes and for construction purposes. And so they're buying this biomass at a high price. Then they need to process this biomass also at a high price, because you're using technologies that are manufactured in developed countries. You're paying high wages because you're in high wages countries. And then you need, so you have all these costs. So the selling price of biochar is very expensive and you need to find niche markets where people can afford paying so much to use biochar for its agronomic purpose. And so you cannot go to farmers because basically they don't have enough money to buy large volumes of biochar. And so Most of the biochar producers today, they're selling small quantities to gardeners or people having vegetable gardens, these kind of small things, but which are really not scalable. And so we really didn't want to go for this model because it's not scalable. And NetZero, since the very beginning, we wanted to build something at scale. There's no interest in just doing one project. And so we started thinking where we can go to have a lot of biomass, at the lowest cost possible. And the solution was actually quite easy. We need to go to the tropics. There's a lot of agriculture there, and there's almost zero valorization scheme for the biomass. Unlike in Europe or in America, where you have probably over 90% of the residues that are generated either by forests or by agriculture that are valued in a way or another for energy, construction, you name it. In these countries, there's nothing like it because they're developing countries because they haven't implemented these schemes yet. And so there's lots of biomass available almost for free. And actually, in a lot of cases, this biomass is a problem for the people that are generating it, the residues. So take an example for coffee, for example, typical tropical crop. Coffee, what the industry is using is beans to actually then grind them and produce the beverage. But coffee grows in a cherry, and so there's rounded fruit. And so you need to take out the outer part of this cherry, basically, that surrounds the bean. And then you have these massive piles of dehusked coffee, so the residues from coffee dehusking. And farmers and processing facilities, they don't know what to do with them. And so they're actually quite happy if someone comes and say, okay, I think I can do something with them and actually make something that's valuable. And so we can being in the tropics means we can have access to huge amounts of biomass at very low cost. And we are actually solving a problem for most of the people that are generating these residues. You will notice that I mentioned crop residues. I didn't mention wood residues. And the reason is that we don't want to use wood residues. We don't want to use residues from forests. The main reason is that there's high risk of deforestation in the tropics with low traceability of the origin of the wood. And so we really don't want to be associated to any deforestation aspects. And so we want to stay away from forest residues. It's also because we think there can be other uses that are maybe better for wood residues. And so we focus on crop residues. And Only focusing on this biomass, we estimate that in the tropics you have around two billion tons of suitable crop residues available every year to do biochar. So we're talking about a very small subset of crop residues that are generated. I'm only mentioning the ones that are suitable for biochar production, which are relatively dry or easy to dry, centralized residues. It's a small subset of what is produced worldwide. So Zero goes in the tropics, and then the model that we're trying to implement is to work in very close proximity with farmers, on a very circular model. So let me describe, for example, the model we have in Brazil. So in Brazil, we have we are working with a cooperative of coffee farmers. And There's over 10,000 of them, so it's a very large cooperative, and. These farmers, they're producing a lot of residues because they grow coffee and then they dehusk the coffee. We go to them, we get their residues, we process these residues into biochar, and this biochar goes back to the exact same fields where the biomass comes from. And so the people that are providing us with the biomass are also the off takers of the biochar. And so we're working in a closed loop in a very limited area. Our first project in Brazil, we're working in 25 kilometer radius from the plant. It's a really, really local model. And the farmers are all the more willing to give us their residues because they know they will get some biochar and that they will get it at a fairly discounted price because we get the biomass for free. And so this is really the model that we're trying to implement. Local circular models that go close to the biomass sources. We don't want to build that big of a plant because for too big, we need to transport the biomass over long distances. And then you have some logistical problems. You also have some emissions associated to the transport. We prefer to do some medium-sized production plants uh, that can process between ten and 20,000 tons of residues per year. And this, we think, is the right model to deploy at scale. And so this is what we're trying to do. And within this model, there's a highly important topic, which is technology. Because on top of the supply of the biomass and the distribution of the biochar, you need
1: to process at some point the biomass. Let's go into the technology in a minute. I'd love to dive into what net zero has developed. But the model you just described is very similar to the way you produce renewable natural gas from agricultural waste, where you try to also have a very local collection, typically cow manure, for instance, produce renewable natural gas, and you return fertilizer to the farmers, there's a real partnership model. Um, So it's interesting to see the parallel here with biochar and the, the very local model. Just before we go into technology, I'd love to understand more on the feedstock that you mentioned, the feedstock, those agricultural residues are not being valorized today in the tropics. What are the different potential use for them maybe using the developed countries as a comparison point. And that might be a very naive question, but I was assuming that those biomass material are compostable, for instance, which would provide fertilizers for the farmers or could be burned for energy use. So how does biochar compare to other use that might already be in place, or as you say, that are not in place probably for good reasons in those countries? Well, I don't know if it's
0: for good reasons, but most of the time, there's no scheme in place just because they're not developed countries. So they didn't have time to implement all the ways to maximize value from waste. There's the energy use, which is, of course, something that you know already exists in some parts of these countries. And some industries are using these residues for energy purposes. Even in these cases, there are usually some fraction of these residues that are available because they're not used completely for energy purposes. And then you mentioned compost. Compost is good, but it's not a very efficient way of dealing with waste. If you can't do better, then you can do compost. But doing biochar is much more effective, both from an agronomic point of view, And also from a climate point of view, doing compost releases a lot of greenhouse gases, especially methane, which is a quite harmful greenhouse gas, much more than CO2. And so it's always trade-offs between solutions. But I really think biochar is an interesting choice because we believe at NetZero that it's what brings more value for the farmers. And our focus is a lot on farmers because they are the ones with whom we're working on the ground. And so we're trying to maximize value for them. Okay.
1: So the climate benefit is greater because you don't have those emissions that you produce when you do composting. And the fertilization or the improvement in the agricultural yields is higher with biochar than what you get with the remains of compost. Super clear. And on the inner energy part, there's, I don't know if you want to talk about that now or
0: later when we talk about technology, but there are some very interesting synergies with biochar and cogeneration of energy because you get some excess energy from the pyrolysis process, the process that's used to produce the biochar. And so you can use this fatal heat and the excess gases from pyrolysis to actually supply some industrial facilities, for example, with their energy needs. And so it's not completely a trade-off. It can be both at the same time, producing biochar and Mm -hmm. producing energy.
1: And that's all the more important that, We're in the tropics where, especially in Africa, access to electricity is a real challenge. I think this is sometimes underappreciated. I think it's 500 million Africans that still don't have access to electricity. And as you say, right, for a business or industrial facility, getting access to electricity can be a game changer for that business just to increase its ability to run some machines and so on. The value there doesn't make sense in the developed countries where you have ubiquitous access to electricity, but definitely in Africa has a huge co-benefit. Yeah,
0: to give you an idea, in Cameroon, where we have built our first plant, we're in a fairly rural area, and you have less than 25% of people having access to electricity. And when they do, it's usually unstable, so you have lots of power cuts. And sometimes these last for days, you know. So it's really something we don't think of, fully agree, when we live in developed countries but it's a major problem in developing countries in general in africa in particular and more specifically in rural areas and given that we build our plants in rural areas because we use crop residues it's all the more important and useful
1: and so you mentioned technology to so help me understand how high-tech this is because i know you can also do we mentioned pyrolysis earlier you can do this in a tin can it can be very low tech to actually produce biochar so what is the difference between an advanced facility like net zero is building and a very homemade facility and also i'm trying to picture what does it look like you mentioned a few thousand tons of biochar is that something mostly automated or do you actually have a fairly labor intensive process to produce a biochar
0: So actually, maybe you're going to be disappointed because even the sort of industrial facilities that we operate are fairly low tech. And this is a good thing. It's a good thing for a number of reasons. The main reason is that being low tech means it's low capex. And being low capex means it can be scaled more easily because you don't need as much money to invest and to have something really at scale. So... Biochar is by far the lowest CAPEX removal technology available today. And we want to keep that I like it because it's really what one of the key advantages of biochar for becoming a solution at scale. Then, of course, there is some differences between artisanal production of biochar and industrial production. There's mainly something around the temperatures that you can reach and also the product quality that you get at the end. And in the middle, there's all the process parameters that are decisive when you do a life cycle analysis that is needed to generate carbon credits. So, having an industrial facility to do that is a way to ensure a homogeneous quality of the product, to make sure that we maximize its agronomic benefits, to make sure they also maximize the climate impact. Because, so basically, Pyrolysis is a process where you heat the biomass in the absence of oxygen, and this process generates two main co-products. You have biochar, so the solid product that is mostly carbon, and you have something called syngas, which is basically combustible gases. And so these gases, if you don't handle them properly, they go back in the atmosphere as methane, for example which is more potent greenhouse gas than CO2. And so having an industrial facility that can process these gases, that can combust them, that can re-inject them in the system to have a process that is self-sustained in terms of heat makes it much, much more efficient from a climate perspective as well as from the product quality perspective. And, um, you know, if... We want to produce biochar at scale. Any way, we need to be industrial; otherwise, it's not going to work. So we're trying it in a zero to do that, but not to be too big. Usually, when you think industrial, you think about very, very big plants, and we really don't think it's the solution. So we're trying to keep it uh, relatively small. And uh, you know, I was mentioning in Brazil, we'll be producing 4,000 tons of biochar per year. So that's a little bit over 6,000 tons of CO2 equivalent they will be removing every year by producing this biochar. So it's not huge, but if you multiply these medium-sized plants, then you
1: start having an impact. Is there a lot of room for technological progress? You mentioned it's a low capex. It's a good thing that it's a fairly simple and low-cost technology. I'm trying to get a sense of, in whichever metrics you're looking at, the efficiency of the production How much room is there for technological progress for industrial facilities?
0: Yeah, there's actually not that much improvement to the core technology because of the laws of physics, basically. When you do pyrolysis, for example, you need to reach a certain temperature. We're talking about something between 500 and 600 degrees Celsius. And so when you reach these temperatures, the degradation of the biomass is subject to the laws of physics. And so you cannot max, there's a point where you cannot go beyond the yield that you're getting just because it's physically impossible. So biotroproduction, the yield is between 25 and 30 percent. Usually it's impossible to have 50 percent yield. So no one will ever produce a pyrolysis machine that has 50 percent yield. It's physically impossible. Now what you can improve is everything around, so you can improve how you process the biomass, you pre-process the biomass before actually putting it in the pyrolysis machine. You can add a number of sensors to monitor the production process. You can have some software added to the hardware to optimize in real time production process, to make sure that we get the highest quality product possible and you know it's not just about the hardware it's also about the software and what we're doing at net zero is try precisely to develop everything that's around the hardware and so we're investing a lot on software we actually announced yesterday a partnership with Dassault System which is the leading industrial modeling player in the market and so you know this is just one example of how technology i mean virtual technology so software can come on
1: top of hardware to optimize the underlying hardware. It's more about the process and the plant optimization rather than rediscovering the core technology, which is very well known on Pyrolysis. So everything you've told us Olivier sounds fantastic, right? It's a permanent carbon removal technology. It has strong benefits, improvement of agricultural yields, providing access to electricity to populations in rural areas that lack access to electricity. You mentioned that it is a low capex investment to get those plants running. So could we deep dive into the unit economics of biochar because that model relies on companies purchasing those carbon credits and the price of those carbon credits is a, a key factor in there. Could you run us a bit through what are the typical unit economics and how does the price of biochar as a carbon credit compare to other forms of carbon credits.
0: Yeah. So maybe I'm not going to answer exactly your question, but we don't want, at least short term, our objective is not to lower the price of carbon credits for a number of reasons. One of them is that carbon credits, at least in our model, they make up around 50% of our revenues. And so having as much revenue as possible from these carbon credits helps us have be profitable more quickly and have more money to reinvest to scale. So this is from the scaling perspective. And then there's also from the climate perspective. We want to make sure as we were mentioning at the beginning of this discussion that companies are prioritizing emission reductions. And so if you have a cheap way of removing carbon, there's a risk that companies are going to choose this option over emission reductions. And this is really not what we want for climate. And so, in a way, it would be good that prices, which are already high, remain high and maybe go even higher than what they are. Because this ensures that only the residual, very hard-to-abate emissions are the ones that are offsetted by the removal credits. For now, at least short and medium term at net zero, our objective is not to try to lower the prices of our carbon credits, And anyway, what we're seeing on the market is that there's no chance that the prices go down in the short term, because there's a hugely growing demand for these credits, because all the large companies in the world are taking these net zero commitments, some of them actually quite early, some say, okay, I'm going to be net zero in 2030. And so they need carbon removal credits as of now and the more time passes the more companies will need these credits to reach net zero so the demand is very high but on the other side the supply is almost inexistent there are very very few projects that are actually removing carbon and you know i'm putting aside the reforestation or afforestation projects although those two are a bit too limited we could go faster but if we consider the technological solutions, which offer more guarantees on the permanence of carbon removal, there's almost nothing today. And so this huge unbalance in the market makes it very unlikely that in the near future prices will go down. And this is a good thing for companies like us, but also for the climate in
1: general. Yeah. It's interesting because I asked the same question to Paul Gross from Remora, who is doing carbon capture for trucking. And I had the same answer that he's not expecting the cost to come down for those type of credits because, as you say, they're very supply-constrained credits and they have a very high quality in terms of permanence and additionality. And therefore, there is no driver to bring down the cost. And I think it's important to make the distinction with avoidance credits where typically the price are being companies are looking for the cheapest credits very often and just to give a sense of magnitude right you can buy credits for a few dollars yeah a ton i'm not sure about the quality of those credits but if you're really just aiming to get access to their credit you can spend three four dollars to have access to that versus when you're talking about a high quality credit on removals and maybe you can share some numbers of biochar but we're talking more in the hundreds of dollars typically exactly it's exactly this if you buy some cheap emission avoidance carbon credit
0: it can be lower than five dollars per ton it's a scam really there's no way it can have any meaningful impact if you pay such a cheap price for emission avoidance projects reasonable price would start around 50 dollars per ton and this should be the probably the low end of the range Because when you do some serious forest protection programs, for example, you need a lot of people to be on the ground to be monitoring how things are going to make sure that there's no deforestation and so on. It has a cost. So no chance that these cheap credits are making any difference. And then for removal, because of the technology that is involved and the nascent market and basically all the projects are either prototypes or very early stage, the production costs are very high. So anyway, it's not just about deciding to sell the credits at a high price. It's because the, the underlying production process is costly. And so, yes, for Biochar, we are talking, as we speak, probably the average market price for Biochar credits is around 150 euros per tonne. And it's probably going to remain like this or go higher in the years to come. If you are considering some direct air capture projects, for example, it can be much higher, like over 600, sometimes even more. And um, so, yes, we're really not talking about the same quality of credits, the same prices. And again, I think it's good that these prices are high, because otherwise you have this massive risk of greenwashing that we've seen in the past, and it's really
1: not the way to go. Yeah, we we're talking about this on the previous episode with Alexi Normand from Greenly, which is a carbon accounting platform on if you don't want to make any as a company, you can just invest and buy those two, three dollar a ton credits and and call yourself carbon neutral and put the green logo in your bottle of milk or your T-shirt and feel great about yourself. You haven't changed anything about the way you're doing your business. You haven't changed anything about your emissions. But from a consumer perspective, often this is perceived as a good action. And just to give another example, right, even in your personal life, if you take a flight, right, depends how far, but it's around a ton of CO2. If you take a medium haul, you can spend $2 and call yourself carbon neutral. That is not going to change things for real. But if you get by a car or direct air capture, you understand right away that you're adding $300, $400 to your airline tickets. So that is a much more you know, from an economic perspective and a behavioral change perspective that has a much more significant impact than just investing two or $3 there. So I'd love to talk also more about the scaling parts because we've understood the model, we've understood the Unicomics here. You have two facilities today and you've only been operating for a few years. What is the operating model to scale the technology? Because as you say, there are investments to be made in the facility and the technology I imagine there are also investment to be made and time to train the local teams and find the right farmers. So how do you move from those two facilities that you have today to what you mentioned earlier, right? Hundreds of medium-sized facilities. Yeah.
0: So this is the big challenge that we have. And it's a challenge that every company that's trying to scale its solution has. Moving from something that has worked in a given place to something that can work you know, in lots of different contexts and that can be standardized and replicated. So in fact, this is exactly what we're trying to do. We've passed the point where we needed to demonstrate that the model that we had thought of actually works. So this, we've demonstrated it with our plant in Cameroon, which was our pilot plant. We actually won with this plant the milestone award from the Prize carbon removal competition from the Musk Foundation. So, you know, we have proved on one unit facility that our model can work. It's not perfect, but we've proven all the key hypotheses. And actually, we were very much in line with what we had in our business model. So that was nice. But the challenge now is to converge to something that is much more standardized and so we are now in a phase of industrialization so in the next two or three years what we're going to do is iterate on the technology and gradually converge to something that is very easy to install very easy to operate very easy to maintain that is relatively low capex that is completely monitored in real time that is quite automated and so on and we want in a way i'm gonna simplify a little bit things but probably we will have this at some point we want to fit everything in a few containers and then when we find a suitable location we bring these containers we just put them there plug them together push a button and the facility starts but to do that you need to optimize every aspect of not just the technology but the model because there's also the sourcing part for example which is different depending on the type of feedstock that you're considering. And so this is what we're doing the next few years. And we have a very, very strong research and development program to address that. And so once we reach this very optimized model, we can really scale. And to really scale, we need to move to a model where we're not the only ones putting the capex, because otherwise it's going to be a limiting factor. And so. Once we have this very optimized model, we want to switch to a franchise model. And we want to franchise our model to people in the agro industry. So people who are processing some crops, who are generating a lot of residues, who want to do something with these residues, and they can produce something valuable for the farmers they're working with that are supplying them with their crops. And so again, you create this very virtuous circle and it's a win-win for everyone and this will also help agricultural value chains decarbonize we didn't mention this in when i was mentioning the unabatable emissions and the ipcc but one of the most difficult sectors to decarbonize is agriculture and uh, because among other things because of fertilizers and so if you can inset carbon, so if you can basically store carbon within the value chain and reduce the use of fertilizers, hence reduce emissions from fertilizers, then you have a very powerful tool. This is what we're targeting ultimately. Having something that integrates within agricultural value chains with a franchise model, working with all the major players, this is how we intend to really scale. And by being
1: in the tropics, we make sure that we have the biggest potential to do that. Hmm. So this franchise model, it's really interesting in terms of scale capabilities. So just playing an example here, a processor in Brazil or some other coffee producing country, for instance, would invest in the net zero technology, ideally the container version of the product, operate the technology, build the partnership with its farmers that are in this area. And net zero would provide, of course, that technology the monitoring and the intellectual property to operate successfully. Is there also a role for the end buyers? You were mentioning that it's very hard to abate the agricultural emissions. Again, taking example of coffee, is there a role for Starbucks to say, I will also co-invest with the coffee processor in Brazil, for instance? Absolutely. This is
0: probably what will happen. I mentioned the agro-processing facilities because this is where the operations will take place, but the people who will be funding these solutions, it's most likely large companies like Starbucks, because they are the ones having the money, basically. Most of the margin is made by FMCGs, and so it's rather on the end of the value chain, the time where you're actually selling the product to the customer that most of the money is made. And so these international companies, they have the money to do that. But the interesting thing is that unlike most other climate investments that companies would need to do, this is a profitable investment. Because you're not just investing in something like direct air capture where you're just willing to store carbon underground. You're investing in something that creates value for farmers and that creates something that will increase your yields, that will reduce your costs because you reduce fertilizers. And so it is actually a profitable investment. And so it's also why we are truly convinced that it can scale. It's because unlike other technological solutions, it is a profitable solution. And so this will considerably help in the scaling.
1: And how fast do you want this or expect this to scale. For net zero, you mentioned hundreds of facilities and I understand yourself some R&D on having that technology stable. But once you get there, how fast do you believe those facilities could scale up? So hopefully as fast as possible. We need to be realistic. So
0: we have an objective, a midterm objective for 2030 to have installed enough production plants to be able to remove 2 million tons of CO2 equivalent per year by 2030. It's both huge and nothing. It's huge for us because it means that we need to go at a very, very fast pace to do that. It's nothing compared to the billions of tons that we were mentioning that we need to remove every year from the atmosphere. And so this is also why it's very important to start scaling these technologies now because scaling takes time. And it's true for biochar, but it's true for any industry. And so what people may not understand, and I've actually had this discussion many times with researchers or people that are involved in politics, where they say, okay, we, the priority is emission reductions. And so let's put all our efforts now on emission reductions, and we'll see later what we do for removal. Well, if you do that, you're sure to fail. There's no way that in 2040, you start wondering about uh, carbon removal, you start building a few projects, and that by 2050, 10 years later, you have something at scale. It's impossible. And so it really shows that you need to start now and that it will take a long time and that we actually already delayed. We should have started even before. But it's really crucial to do it as quickly as possible and, and reaching these billion tons of CO2 per year will
1: take time it's a fantastic point this time it takes to scale up is massively underappreciated and i think really good examples are solar and wind it took 20 years if not more to get to a point where those technologies were cost competitive with coal natural gas and so on and it, it is not at scale today it is scaling up there are a massive capacity addition of solar and wind, but it will take another twenty years, if not 30, to really fully transform the power grid to renewables. And we're seeing the same thing with electric cars and others, where the technology is getting mature, but the time to replace the entire existing fleet of machine is several decades. Yeah. So if we want to have removals in the order of magnitude of 10 gigaton. We obviously need that technology to be ready, but we need to bring it up the scale curve. And that takes a very long time to do.
0: To do that, of course, it needs to be done by private companies because they're the ones innovating. But we didn't mention up until now the regulation part. I think it's very important and it can really be decisive in facilitating this growth and the scaling up. I'm actually quite worried that politicians are not seeing this topic for now, or at least not enough. The U.S. is starting to do some interesting things about, you know, funding these uh, climate solutions, and there there have been some recent announcements of billions of dollars that are put on the table to help these industries scale. But if you look in Europe, for example, there's barely anything, and it's mostly because of politicians not being trained and aware of these issues. And so we're a bit of a paradoxical situation where we have the solutions, we have identified the technologies, and if we scale all the technologies, we can reach the levels that we need. But we need incentives to do that as quickly as possible. And so we need funding and we need a regulatory framework that's not too much of a constraint that needs to guide a little bit and to give visibility to the different players to be able to then invest and scale. And this is really what we're missing. So I think we will never emphasize enough this point. We need regulation and we need visibility and money to fund and scale these solutions.
1: Yes, definitely. In in Europe, the removal regulation is not there yet. Olivier, I could for hours on this scaling topic together. But it's been a real pleasure talking together today. I really appreciate your time. I learned a lot about biochar. It's truly a fascinating product, both for its ability to sequester the carbon, but also all those co-benefits we talked about on energy generation and agricultural yield. It's interesting to see that it is a asset heavy business with operations and technology on the ground. And yet the model you're putting forward, the franchise model, is a way to rapidly scale it up and involve all the partners, the farmers, the food processors, and food companies themselves to get to those 2 million tons of carbon sequestered you were mentioning. So thank you so much for sharing that experience and the vision of net zero. And I wish you the best to get to those hundreds of of biochar facilities in the coming (laughs) years. Absolutely.
0: Thank you very much, Florian.
1: Congratulations, you finished this episode. Thank you so much for listening until the end. And if you liked it, please don't forget, subscribe and leave a five star review. This is really helpful to be more visible in the rankings and to be able to keep inviting the best of climate tech entrepreneurs in this show. Thank you so much. And I'll catch you on our next episode very soon.